Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. A Fed chair, a former Treasury secretary, a former White House chief economist, two CEOs who turned around their companies, and two private equity competitors with different takes on their business. This is a special best of edition of Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. Each week, we bring you interviews with some of the top minds in government, economics, business, and finance with the goal of taking a broader and deeper look at the world of investing. As we head into the holiday season, we thought we'd pull together some of the highlights from the year so far across a range of subjects. And we start at the top with the person everyone on Global Wall Street talks about and speculates about just about every day. We had the rare opportunity to sit with Fed Chair Jay Powell for an extended one-on-one conversation, focused not so much on what he thought the Fed would do at any given meeting, but instead on how he approaches his job as steward of monetary policy, what his theory of the case is. We started with one of the big surprises, even mysteries this year, why the U.S. economy continues to charge ahead despite all those rate hikes he's delivered at record speed. We certainly have a very uh, uh, resilient economy on our hands. We've got uh, the economy growing strongly. If you think back a year, many forecasts called for the U.S. economy to be in recession this year. Not only has that not happened, growth is now running for this year above its longer run trend. So that's been a surprise, driven largely by uh, consumer spending, driven by a very strong job market with uh, people getting jobs with high, first high nominal wages, and then as inflation has come down, real wages, which is spurring spending. And we've also had inflation coming down. So, you know, uh, that's, it, it really is a story of much stronger demand. There may also be, there may be some ways in which the economy is um, less affected by interest rates. Uh, it's hard to know precisely, but for example, companies, many companies, any company with bond market access will have termed out its debt, right? 
and therefore may not be feeling the effects of higher rates. The same may be true of homeowners who have a, a long-term fixed rate, low rate mortgage, who then are therefore not, because it's not an adjustable rate or a higher rate, they're not, they're not feeling that increase in rates. So the, the economy may be somewhat less uh, susceptible to the effects of rate increases. On the other hand, if you look at, um, look at interest-sensitive spending, these are very much the, 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 um, the places where we, see, we, where we expect to see and do see effects. So for example, in, um, in housing or in, you know, the housing sector has been, sector has been very affected by higher rates as purchases of, of uh, durable goods. If you look at surveys, people will not say that it's a good time to buy a car or a house, quite the contrary. So we see policy working through its usual channels. It may just be that rates haven't been high enough for long enough. And, and again, it's all happening in a context of, of very strong demand. We've heard other people speculate maybe the terming out of debt, as you say, both corporate debt and household debt, may diminish the effectiveness of rate hikes. Do you have a view on whether that's true? And if it is true, what does it say about monetary policy? Does it mean you have to go farther in the rate hikes, or do you just not have the power to affect it? So no, I, I don't think that, that there's a, um, a fundamental shift in the way that interest rates affect the economy. There may be some differences in this cycle because of what I mentioned. Um, I, as I mentioned, you, we are seeing those, the effects where we expect to see them, which is interest-sensitive spending and also asset prices to some extent, uh, and the exchange rate, which you're also seeing a strong exchange rate, which is, which is disinflationary. So I don't think there's a, a fundamental change in the way monetary policy affects the economy. And again, it goes back to just very strong demand. We take the economy as it is. We take fiscal policy and the economy and all the things we don't control, they come to us and we conduct policy always to achieve maximum employment and stable prices. So we just take what comes. The fact that we have a strong growing economy, a strong growing labor market and uh, you know, inflation coming down. These are the elements that we want to, to see that to achieve the, the outcome we want. It may take more time, but ultimately, uh, those are, that's, this is the kind of thing you would want to see along the path to getting through this without a big increase in unemployment. How much effect thus far has the Fed had? Uh, we, we all have memorized now long and variable lags. How long and how variable, and where are you in that process? Are you at the 25% point, the 50% in terms of seeing it in the effect in the real economy? So there's, there's no precision in, the, uh, in, in our understanding of, of how long lags are. Um, one thing that has changed in the modern era is that markets now, uh, over the course of the last 30 years, central banks have decided instead of being secretive to be very transparent. And what that has meant is that markets move actually well in anticipation, well before our policy moves. So the transmission from policy moves to, to financial conditions actually happens before the moves now, whereas that was not the case 50 years ago when Milton Friedman you know, coined the phrase long and variable lags. So, but now you have financial conditions changing and the question is how does it affect the economy? The standard channels are uh, asset prices, interest sensitive spending and the exchange rate, for example. And we, again, we do see that happening just not as fast as we would like. And I would attribute some of that to just stronger demand. You know, household savings were, were turned out to be higher. Household spending has been stronger, and that's by far the largest part of the economy. In order to conduct monetary policy effectively, do you need at least a, hypoth a hypothesis about how much has already hit the economy? Because it's hard to know how much more you need to do if you don't know how far you've come. 
So on, on lags, I think if you think back, it's been a year since now since, since the last 75 basis point hike we did. It was at the November meeting in 2022. The first one was in June, so it's more than a year. So we should be seeing the effects. By the way, they don't all just arrive on one day. They, they arrive and then they're thought to peak and then to diminish. So there's a lot of uncertainty around lags. Um, and one of the reasons why we have slowed down significantly this year is to give monetary policy time to work. The truth is, though, you can find academic support for different, different speeds of, and, and duration of lag. So we have to use our eyes and a little bit of risk management and, and patience in slowing down the pace to make sure that we are seeing the full effects. And I think, again, that's, that's part of why we've slowed down this year. We've, you know, we, were, we went very quickly in 2022 to catch up to where we needed to be, and now we're moving carefully with these decisions. After we spoke with Chair Powell, our special Wall Street Week contributor and former Treasury Secretary Larry Summers warned us about what he thought Powell had not given sufficient attention to, that looming federal deficit and what it means for the economy and for monetary policy. I didn't find anything to strongly disagree with in what Chairman Powell said but there was a big Newfoundland of a dog that wasn't barking as he was speaking. And that's everything about the federal uh, fiscal situation. That matters two ways. If there's more debt and much bigger deficits, that means more demand in the economy. And that raises the neutral rate now and raises even more the prospective neutral rate in the future. That's one important link. The other important link is that when you're trying to sell huge amounts of long-term uh, debt because you have very big deficits, its price goes down and that means longer, higher long-term yields, a rising term premium. And I think you've got both of those phenomena going on and realization that the neutral rate's likely to be higher because of uh, fiscal policy and the uh, supply absorption uh, aspect. And I understand that the Fed's job is not to get involved in uh, fiscal policy, but I think over time, the Fed is going to have to, as the monetary authority of the country, going to have to engage on some of these questions about uh, Treasury debt, especially given the magnitude of its own balance sheet and the magnitude of the losses that acting as the agent of the Treasury and taxpayers, the very substantial losses that have been taken uh, in a mark-to-market sense on the Fed's balance sheet. So those fiscal issues have to be at the center, it seems to me, of a discussion of interest rate issues. So pick up on exactly what that means for the Fed, because uh, Jay Powell didn't deny that, although he said there are a lot of factors. He thinks that's just one factor going into what's going on with the 25-year yield, for example, or 30-year yield right now. He said it's too complicated. He doesn't really know. But he said we have to take that as it is. It doesn't change our policy. If you were exactly right, and I assume you are, how does it change the Fed's policy, monetary policy, right now? Well, I think there are two, there, there are two separate parts of it. Insofar as the neutral rate is being pushed up by higher fiscal deficits, that's a thing that means the Fed has to raise the actual rate in order to 
keep the same degree of balance between the accelerator and the brakes. Insofar as the interest rate is going up because of some kind of term premium, and that's important, that's restraint that's being applied to the economy, uh, that's the brake, and it might substitute for a brake the Fed would otherwise have to provide. So it's not enough for the Fed to recognize that rates are going up. It has to implicitly be forming a view as to what the cause is. And I don't think that's analytically easy at this point. And it's sort of the first rule of minefields to step gingerly. That was special Wall Street Week contributor Larry Summers of Harvard. Coming up, we turn to another economist, Dr. Cecilia Rouse, about where the economy is headed as we head into an uncertain 2024. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is a special edition of Wall Street Week, bringing you some of the most important interviews from 2023. I'm David Weston. Earlier this year, Cecilia Rouse stepped down as chair of President Biden's Council of Economic Advisors and agreed to take over as president of the Brookings Institution as of the first of the year. We talked with her earlier this month after U.S. jobs numbers came in a bit lower than expected and asked what they told us about where the economy is headed. I think we are seeing the slowing of the labor market, which has been long anticipated. Some might say what took so long. Uh, but what we see is that employment growth remains healthy. Like in, if we were to talk pre-pandemic, an average job growth, if we look over the last three months, has been just over 200,000 jobs a month. This month it was came in at 150. That number will be re- revised. Uh, but what we see is healthy job growth, which is consistent with an economy that is powering along, but which is coming down from the very high growth we had as uh, the economy recovered from the pandemic. 
I think these numbers will be welcomed by the Fed. As I said, I think many economists will see this as the natural course of the economy getting back to normal. Well, no offense to the economists such as you, but you've been off on some f- a few things recently. Uh, and, and let me talk about that specifically, the relationship between the labor market on the one hand and inflation on the other. We thought we knew what that was, that it seemed to really, the relationship went away, that Phillips curve seemed to be really flat. Where are we now? Do we have a theory about what the labor market means for inflation? So, you know, the reality is that in economics, there's not a fabulous theory and one theory of inflation. And I think that is part of the challenge. Another part of the challenge is what was the source? We know that we had unprecedented supply challenges due to the pandemic, both in terms of getting goods to people, manufacturing goods, because people have a part of that process. And with the pandemic, they couldn't show up to work. And then we also know we had unprecedented demand because of the remarkable support that the federal government here and abroad provided to consumers and businesses to get them through the pandemic. So we know we had this mismatch of supply and demand. The question is which was going to win in terms of uh, sort of regularizing faster. So I, I think this goes back to we hadn't seen inflation for a long time. Economics doesn't have one solid, well-established theory of inflation. And the fact that we had an unprecedented shock to our uh, domestic economy and the global economy. What we're seeing now is uh, monetary authorities stepped in, uh, the federal government stepped in, they pulled back appropriately, and the economy is getting back to normal. And as a labor economist, which you are, what about what I would call the cross tabs? Uh, beyond just the overall numbers, the top line numbers, uh, we had been having a pattern, I believe, of having some of the lower income people and people of color, some of the minorities, benefit disproportionately. Is it a last in, first out sort of thing where uh, as you start to slow the, the labor market, actually those are the people that get hurt the most? Well, that is a bit to remain to be seen. You are absolutely right that traditionally strong labor markets benefit those who traditionally are not helped in labor markets. So we had narrowing of, for example, racial gaps in unemployment and employment. Uh, We saw women have benefited tremendously in this recovery. Uh, What we saw in today's job report suggested a bit of a tick up in unemployment for African-Americans, Hispanics, uh, but we saw overall a tick up as well. So this remains to be seen. There have been, you know, there are some changes in our labor market. We still have very strong growth uh, in employment, I think, overall, especially given where we are. And we see uh, labor having more of a voice. Uh, Traditionally, when we see unions being stronger, that helps those uh, who are the lower wage workers as well. We've seen increases in the minimum wage. So I think it depends. We will have to see. Uh, One thing we do believe we've also seen for African-Americans is that the wage increases and the the labor market increases are changes in occupation. So if they stick there, that could be more enduring. But honestly, we will see as we go, hopefully, what we see now is a labor market that is cooling. The Federal uh, Reserve is able to pause the interest rate increases and maybe even start to decrease at some point in the future when inflation needs to come down a bit more but that we maintain this strong labor market even as inflation continues to cool. 
You mentioned the labor unions, and certainly that has been a development through the course of the summer. We've had the Writers Guild, we had the Actors, we had UPS, and now we had the UAW with the auto workers. More yet to come. There are still some issues pending out there. Do you have a sense or an hypothesis whether this is a fundamental shift, perhaps, over the longer term of the power between labor on the one hand and capital on the other, or whether this is labor basically doing what it should be doing, which is selling at the top of the market, if you would. This is when they have the most power, so get the best deal they can, but it will come back down. Again, remains to be seen. I think in a healthy economy, we have both labor has, has voice. And we have, uh, you know, capital, the owners and the managers also have agency and they, they work together and they, and they negotiate because fundamentally we want, we want a strong economy that benefits all. But we also don't want to leave workers behind. Uh, we understand shareholders and managers have to get their returns as well. So I hope that we keep we rebalance that negotiation and so that we don't have this increasing income inequality, this increasing wealth inequality, which I think is not healthy for our society, both economically nor politically. That was Dr. Cecilia Rouse, who takes over as president of the Brookings Institution on January 1st. This is a special best of edition of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. When Brian Moynihan took over as CEO of Bank of America in 2010, his company was still reeling from the acquisition of Merrill Lynch and Countrywide. Today, the second largest bank in the country is making record profits. Brian sat down with us at the Aspen Economic Strategy Group meetings in August against the backdrop of beautiful mountains, the failure of several regional banks in March, and recurrent uncertainties over funding the federal government. But throughout the year, Brian came back to the overall strength of the U.S. economy. Because in the end of the day, the consumption power of the United States drives economies around the world. Therefore, there's, you know, U.S. consumers spend dollars. So if you're selling stuff in dollars, you got to be uh, exposed to dollar. And, and, and so I think the idea of some of this debate about reserve currency status, it's been tightening. And, and the flight to quality in the U.S. tends to come. Now, 10-year bonds moved up and everybody gets moved on. But we're talking about the difference between, you know, 380, 390 and 410, 420. These are not very big moves in the grand scheme of things. It is tapping quickly and people get up excited about who trade bonds is living. From the grander impact of the economy, those moves are needed to get the, ultimately the yield curve has to get back in sync or else we aren't taming the inflation or we're going to drive into a recession. When you talk about the strength of the U.S. dollar, is it stronger today as a reserve currency globally than it was 10, 20 years ago? And if so, why? Because I think the opportunities in the U.S. are the strongest. And that's why, you know, with a great financial system we have, with a great set of companies and innovation we have, the, the research universities we have, the things like, if we keep investing in all that and let capitalism and, you know, you United States-style capitalism drive, the U.S. will always be a favored place because other places are struggling with different systems that prove not to be as beneficial, uh, with less innovation, less ability to tackle problems. And, and so, yes, it's interesting from time to time all what goes on. And But if you think about, you know, think about the late 60s to now, we've doubled the amount of people working in the United States. We were supposed to be taken over by Japan, Inc. We were, the computers were going to get rid of all the people. The people were still working. You know, we had the war in Vietnam. We had uh, uh, the political uh, constitutional crisis in Nixon president. You had uh, an oil embargo. All that stuff happened in the early 70s and still a, a decade, you know, 50 years later, we have twice as many people work in this country. Since we talked last, Brian, we now have the proposed regulations on capital requirements yeah. from the federal bank regulators. We talked before and you said 100 basis points, as I recall, a difference in the capital requirements would amount to $150 billion less your loan. Yeah. Now we have the proposals. What would it mean for Bank of America and for our banking system? 
Well, it, what it does is, it, it's not to get too technical in the grand scheme of things, but it, it changes the calculation of risk-weighted assets, RWA. And so it, the idea is that the estimates by the Fed is it's 15 to 20% of RWA increase. When you do that, then 10% of RWA at X and 10% of RWA at 1.1 times X means you have to have more capital. And so, so the amount of capital goes up. That then constrains lending because you can't do anything with that capital. If you did, then you'd have more RWA and you have to have more capital. So, so, but I think if you step back, this industry is well capitalized. It just proved it again in another crisis. It's well managed. It's well regulated. You've had successive Fed uh, regime, you know, chairs and people working in the, in the chair, supervision vice chair over the years say the capital is adequate industry. It's well, it's well managed. It's well capitalized. There'll be uh, banks will fail. They fail. They fail throughout history. That happens. Um, but since the financial crisis, more people are under the tent because the issue of the financial crisis, a lot of stuff was in a tent. The problem is if you get the capital regulations of the banking system too tight, you push stuff back outside the tent, and that's a concern. So as I look at it, one, give a set of rules, we'll live with it. Two, it won't, you know, Bank of America will adjust its business model to make it work. But what's been interesting about this is its competitive position in the United States versus Europe and others. This is making the bank industry all banks less competitive to mid-sized U.S. companies than foreign banks are to mid-sized U.S. companies participating in the same global supply chains in those countries. That's, that's more of a trade question and a balance of power question. That's one. And then second, I'm surprised by the amount of dissent at the governors of Federal Reserve. I've been working on Federal Reserve stuff for my whole career, 40 years now. And I was just surprised the amount of debate, which shows you that, you know, whether it's mortgage loans on one side, whether it's uh, tax benefits or, uh, and treatment for uh, uh, Energy, clean energy investments, or whether it's the basic trading and things like that. There's got a lot of water that's got to go over the dam here to get these rules right, because there's a debate even among the governors themselves about what the right answer is. Over the years, Brian, you said there's a role for regulation, and you'll live with regulation, as you say you will with capital requirements. But what is the problem that's being addressed? That's what I don't quite understand. You talked about the crisis we had yeah. back in March with the banks. I'm not sure this addresses that. Well, and that's been the debate, and that's like, it, it, go read the dissents and the debate and the uh, th things. So strong regulation is important. Uh, rapid growth in banks tends to come from things that turn out to be not so interesting after the fact. And um, so I think you know, that's the thing. They need to sort of come to a common agreement on Basel III across the world. We're just applying it with much more rigidity and, and requirements. And so if you look at the largest bank in France, UK, and Germany, they have about half the capital requirements that the largest banks in the U.S. do. So that, that gets into competitive question. And so I think people just have to look at it seriously, look at it relative to what we're trying to do here. We want the strongest banking industry. Our bank industry has better returns, has better things. But on the other hand, our multiples are half or less than the S&P multiples. There's a reason for that, which is investors are saying, wait a second, if the capital demands don't stop, we aren't sure that we can continue to invest. So there's a little bit of a countervail here that people have to pay attention to. And then back to your point, Every 100 basis points of capital is 150, 100 billion less loans we at Bank America could do. And it, this applies across. They can't be done other places. Those companies aren't that size. Yeah. That was Bank of America Chair and CEO Brian Moynihan. This is a special edition of Wall Street Week, reprising some of the most important interviews we've had this year. Private equity and other forms of alternative investing has had a pretty rough time recently, going from a record year in 2021 to almost freezing up in 2022 and just getting going again this year. We talked to two leaders in the sector about their somewhat different takes on a challenging business, starting with Blackstone CFO Michael Che, who says the challenges may benefit his firm. Our business model is really made for times like this. Um, at its core, 
you know, we're all about long-term locked up committed capital uh, through fund structures. And what that allows us to be is patient and it allows us obviously to have capital at a time when capital is short. Uh, and indeed we have nearly $200 billion of dry powder to invest opportunistically in the coming time period. And our history has shown that those couple years coming out of a cycle are uh, some of the best times to invest. So we're excited about what the future will bring. As you see that thaw, and if I can draw the analogy, the green shoots coming up through the ice, more or less, is the nature of the deals changing? We saw a piece in the Wall Street Journal this week, actually Blackstone was mentioning it, that suggested private equity is doing more smaller deals, maybe because of the uncertainty, the price of financing, even regulatory overhang. Are you, do you, are you seeing smaller deals than you did before? I think, well, we, we have our own particular perspective. We, scale is one of our big advantages uh, in our private equity. It allows us to do things others can't do. In our private equity business, you know, we've successfully in the last couple of years um, been able to engineer a couple of really large deals, a partnership with Emerson um, in the climate technologies area. Copeland is the name of the business. Recently, a $5 billion take private of a, a business called Cvent. Um, so we do think that's one of our edges. And so you can't paint with a broad brush that the deals are getting smaller. I do think that the development of the direct lending market, which there's been a lot of uh, focus on in the private credit area, you know, has in, in this cycle and, and I think secularly um, allows for uh, deal making to continue, including at relative scale in a way that maybe five, 10 years ago was less, uh, less, less doable. As you look at the, the uh, landscape out there, where are the investment opportunities and how dependent are they on assumptions that were done or close to done with the hiking of the rates? Sure. Well, I, it's a, a multifaceted answer and we have a broad business. And so we have sort of a balanced attack and aren't relying on one single strategy. But I think for sure on the on the credit side, lending money right now in this environment is a very compelling thing to do with very good risk reward. Probably some of the best risk reward we've seen in a long time in the credit area. So in things like direct lending, you know, you can generate double digit returns given where base rates are and spreads uh, for being in the very senior most part of the capital structure with a lot of equity beneath you. So that is very attractive in other forms of private credit, whether it's asset backed credit uh, or real estate credit. Um, similarly, it's a very good time to invest from a risk reward standpoint. So that's one big theme. And then on the equity side, a little bit apropos what I talked about when I went through the deals we're doing, um, you know, I'd say we're still uh, um, applying some of our same key themes around sort of the sectors and areas we want to invest in. But now we think we'll do it in a more interesting environment, uh, maybe a somewhat more dislocated environment to find value. So um, that's really how we're approaching it. For a different approach to private equity, we talked with KKR co-head of global private equity, Pete Stavros, about their use of shareholder capitalism to generate value. Well, stakeholder capitalism for me is finding a way to not only deliver great outcomes for shareholders, but doing right by workers and, and the climate. And I have to say there's tons of brilliant people working on climate issues. Obviously, it's critical. There's not enough people focused on labor. And so that's really my passion. A lot of it has to do with how I grew up. My dad was a construction worker for 40 years, earned an hourly wage, and really taught my sister and I around the dinner table, what it's like being an hourly worker. You know, you don't have a voice, nobody listens to you, there's no incentive alignment, and you have no stake in the outcome. So that ignited a passion in me from a very early age to think about these labor issues. And then when I became an investor, 
you know, wow, what an opportunity because you're responsible for all of these companies with all of these many employees. And if you can cascade change through a variety of, and a number of companies, which private equity is well suited to do, you can impact, you know, thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people. So that sounds fine, but you'll forgive me if many of us who don't understand private equity the way you do, don't associate that approach with private equity. We tend to think you go and you buy the company, you strip out costs, you leverage it up, you sell it. Yeah, well, look, private equity is not perfect. Uh, Capitalism's not, not perfect. But this is a superior way of operating a company in every respect. You can align incentives, not just of the senior team, but of all of the employees, help them create wealth for themselves and create a better culture. I mean, if you can figure out a way, and we think we're on the right path here, to have employees less likely to quit their jobs, more engaged on the job, you've got a better opportunity to deliver on value creation initiatives, which is the core of private equity. The core of private equity is, transformation. Take a good business, make it great. And you're not going to be as effective as you could be in that effort if you don't have everyone aligned. So that sounds great. It also sounds fairly simple. Is it when you actually do it? Because often the implementation is where the tricky part lies. Yeah, it's incredibly difficult. So if this were easy, this would have been done 50 years ago. And there's many challenges, starting with, so let me just define the program. The, the, the program that we've been working around around employee ownership is about much more than handing out stock. If it's just handing out stock, then we're in a compensation discussion, which is important, but that's not going to change cultures. Uh, as my friend Dove Seidman always says, you can triple people's compensation and not get ownership behaviors, which I think mm-hmm. is very true. So we are taking ownership as the foundation, as an ethos, and then on top of that, we are building a robust employee engagement effort, teaching financial literacy, opening up the business plan to all employees, financial information, sharing financials with all employees, and teaching basic corporate finance so they can understand the information being shared with them. All of this stuff taken together is what can move a culture. And to your point, it's hard. You know, day one, people say, I don't believe it. I don't believe I'm gonna have a voice in my work. I don't believe this stock's ever gonna be worth anything. To your point, I've read about private equity, you know, I'll believe it when I see it. Another challenge is CEOs are overwhelmed. A lot of CEOs will say to me, okay, let me just get this straight. You want me to double my profits. You want the financials by the 12th of the month, the metrics package by the 15th of the month. You want me to decarbonize, add diversity to the board, change the way I recruit so we add diversity deep into the organization. And now you want teach financial literacy, drive employee engagement, make everyone an owner in the business. You know, come on, Pete. What are the real priorities? And so CEOs are overwhelmed. The unlock is, and this this enables all of it, is for CEOs to understand if you do these last four things right, it's gonna make everything else uh, easier. So no, it's not easy, but it's it's worth the effort. Does it also hurt their cost structure? When you start talking about sharing and comp and things like that, does that actually add to their cost structure? Or do you offset in the compensation and the salary and benefits? Well, one important, thing to understand is this is never a trade for wages and benefits. So we are, this is not about pushing risk onto workers. So we're not asking workers, here's some stock, can we take some comp and benefits back? It's always incremental, it's always free. We're not asking workers to invest out of pocket. So to your question, is it, a, and it's not an incremental fixed cost, it's, it's sharing in upside. So it's, there's no payout if there's no value creation. And in our experience, this pays for itself when it's done well, and I don't want to make it sound like it's easy, When you're patient and you put years of effort into this, this pays for itself many times over. Let me give you an example. So public company uh, that we bought in 2013 was called Gardner Denver. 
So we took it private in 2013. There were 6,000 employees at the company. Out of 6,000 people, 86 people had ownership, which is what we see typically. It's one to 5%. They had never done an employee engagement survey ever. Massively high quit rates. When we started measuring engagement, 20% was the, we, we measured in the 20th percentile, according to Gallup. We brought in a new leadership team, totally changed the way the company ran. We shared openly the business plan, financials. We made huge improvements in things like worker safety. And when I give you the results, I, I want to stress this took us almost 10 years. But the engagement scores went from the 20th percentile to the 90th, hmm. and the quit rate went down 90%. That was Pete Stavros of KKR. Coming up, we'll hear from GE CEO Larry Culp about the remarkable turnaround of a corporate icon and how it happened. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high-yield-account. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash GreenFestival. This is a special best of edition of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. GE has gone through a remarkable transformation, selling assets on the way to breaking up into three different publicly traded companies and increasing value all along the way. But when Larry Culp took on the role of CEO five years ago, it didn't look like it was going to turn out this way. When we talked with him about how the turnaround came to be, we started with why he took the job in the first place. GE an incredibly important company to our country and to the world. GE, a company that I had long admired through the course of my career. And given what I had heard, given what I had learned as a director, clearly a, a, a challenge, perhaps the challenge of my generation. And it was really those three reasons that ultimately led me to say, yes, I'll put my uniform back on, and here we are. So you put your uniform back on, uh, what did you set out to do first? What were your priorities as you sat down the first day in that desk? Because often, even if you're close to the job, until you've had the job, you haven't had it. 
Uh, that's right. I don't remember sitting down much that first day. Right, there was a lot, uh, a lot happening. But I, I knew relatively quickly that we had to do two things. One, we had to get our arms around the balance sheet issues. We had over 140 billion of debt outstanding. That was a crushing load in a host of different ways. And we needed to get to a better place in terms of the day-to-day -day operation of the business. And those turned out to be priorities that really took us through the first couple of years, deleveraging and running the businesses better. It was really that simple. As I say, you were on the board for a short time before mm -hmm. you took over. Uh, so some of the problems you knew about, but you couldn't anticipate Boeing 737 MAX, you couldn't anticipate the pandemic, couldn't anticipate supply chain, war in Ukraine. Did that change your plan? Well, I think early on, we knew that we needed the utmost sense of urgency around the deleveraging. When a number of us had joined the board through the course of 2018, the plan of record was to actually spin our healthcare business, much as we did earlier this year. But I think we found, as we dug into it, that while that was a good idea, we couldn't possibly pull it off, given the leverage level and given the performance of the other businesses, which is why we made the quick pivot through the fall into early 2019 to actually sell a small part of healthcare, our biopharma business, for $20 billion. And that was really the first big step we took toward the deleveraging. All the while, I was spending time with the team touring facilities, talking to customers, trying to get my arms around in terms of what we were doing day in and day out and why we weren't anywhere close to our full potential operationally. As you see, Larry, you had to deleverage. You really had to take a hard look at the balance sheet and really clean it up mm -hmm. as quickly as you could. Uh, to draw a strained analogy, it's like the game of gin. You have to figure out which cards to hold and which ones to lay down. As you mm -hmm. went through your operations, including healthcare, but others as well, what was your criteria for saying, this one we're going to hold, I think this one we can give up? Well, I think we wanted, I looked at all three businesses. I was new to the business. I hadn't really been deep into aerospace or energy. I had some exposure to healthcare. I thought all three businesses were terrific. Leaders in their own right, solving significant global challenges, businesses that we could run better than we were at the moment. And we needed, we needed really everybody contributing, again, given the, uh, the debt load. So what we did with Biopharma was really look for a small business that would yield a high multiple. So we didn't give up much, but we knew given the growth potential of the business, we could make a meaningful step forward in the deleveraging, which is exactly what we did. All the while, staying focused on the basics, improving our daily operations, so we could be better for our customers, we could throw off more cash, and begin to carry that debt load in addition to some of the, uh, the asset sales that we were involved in. You've mentioned a couple of times improving the operations, which sounds easy, but in my experience, it's really hard. Uh, so how could you, as a, something of an outsider, come in and understand where you needed to improve operations? And that, of course, is not just what people do, but who's doing it. Well, exactly right. And for me, David, my approach has always been it's about the team first and foremost. Fortunately, we inherited, I think, a, a tremendous team at GE in each of the three businesses at corporate up and down the, the org chart. So what we did is we set about making sure we, we knew where we were organizationally. We dove in deeply to make sure we understood how we were running the businesses, not just in the C-suite, but all the way down to the factory floor. And there were a host of opportunities 
that we as a team identified areas where we could do better, we could do better for our customers, reduce cycle times, improve our delivery performance, all the while taking a, late, a lot of waste out of the system, waste that often, frankly, helped us improve our profitability and our cash flows. It was a daily battle, it was a game of inches, but over the course of time, we really were able to lay in our lean operating model so that today we're able to perform at much higher levels across General Electric in ways that I think are going to serve all three of our businesses very well going forward. I, I think I hear you saying you don't think it was the team that was at fault. The, the team was basically a solid team you could work with. So that makes you ask exactly what was wrong with the operation. And let me start with one thing that's terribly important is metrics. Was it a metrics issue? Did you bring in a new set of metrics? Where'd you get them from? Well, the team that we have at GE is a team that I've just have really been thrilled to be a part of over these last five years. We brought in an, a number of new people, we mixed it up, but by and large the team that you see on the field today at GE is the team that was there five years ago. I give that, that team very high marks. David, with respect to metrics, one of the things that we worked hard to do was to make sure that we had a shared definition of winning. It's very easy in a large company for everybody to think that they're doing what has been asked of them. In turn, they develop their own scorecards, their own metrics. We really tried to keep things very simple. Start with safety, quality, delivery, cost. That's the operational core of, of any business. And then we look to growth. We look to some of the financial metrics like cash flow generation, margin expansion. So it was a shorter list. It was a more compact list, accessible to people throughout the organization, and then we just got focused on driving the critical few. Well, well shorter off, often is conducive to actually communicating, because you have too many priorities, it's hard for the organization to really follow it. But how do you, once you have those, make sure that everybody in the organization is getting it? Because too often, people at the top, they say things, and it gets down a level, maybe two levels. It doesn't get down, actually, under the shop floor. Well, you communicate until you're tired of hearing yourself say the same things, and then you keep going. That's what I've learned over time. But we tried to be hands-on, and that's really the way that we've operated. So it's not just using the CEO's bully pulpit to communicate those metrics or our leadership behaviors more broadly, humility, transparency, and focus. But through every operating review, through every customer visit, time on the factory floor, time on a lab, having the same conversation with the team. Where are we with respect to safety, quality, delivery, and cost? How are we better today than we were yesterday? How do we get better tomorrow? And that really begins to turn the flywheel. It takes time, and as you mentioned earlier, we had a lot of curveballs thrown at us, given some of the, uh, the tragedies with the 737 MAX, COVID, Ukraine. But this is a resilient team. This is a talented team. It's a team that loves the mission, loves the company, and we've just kept doing that type of work day in and day out. And I think that's what, where you see us today. That was Larry Culp, Chairman and CEO of GE. Finally, one more thought, and it comes from economist Melissa Carney of the University of Maryland, whose new book, The Two-Parent Privilege, addressed an economic challenge we have in the United States today, and that is the number of children growing up in single-parent families. Studying U.S. income inequality and poverty and social mobility for over 20 years, and I've been in countless at this point policy conversations and academic conversations about these issues, and it has become abundantly clear to me that what's happened to 
families in the U.S., and in particular, the rise in the share of kids living with one-parent households, how this has primarily happened outside the college-educated class. These trends are really important to what we're seeing with child poverty, inequality, undermining social mobility. College-educated adults over the past 40 years, as their earnings have gone up, as their incomes have gone up, they've continued to marry each other, have their kids in two-parent married households, and shower an abundance of resources on their kids. But outside the college-educated class, there has been a huge decline in the share of kids living with two-parent households. And we're not just talking about teen moms or the most disadvantaged groups. Teen childbearing is way down. If we just look at the kids born to high school-educated moms, moms with a high school degree, maybe some college, moms we would have considered, parents we would have considered, you know, middle class in the middle of the education distribution, the likelihood that their kids are growing up in a married parent home has declined from... 86% to 63% in a 40-year period. This is massive, and this has not been good for kids. This really isn't saying that single moms aren't doing everything they can to take care of their kids and to give them the best shot in life, but having two parents in the home means two sources of income, two people with time to invest in kids, you know, two people keeping an eye out on you, investing in you, and, and so that decline is really is really important. It's not been good for kids. And because there really is now, over the past 40 years, this emergence of a wide gap by education group, this is really accentuating income inequality, inequality in outcomes, and contributing to class gaps in our society. So what do we see in the data? We see that there's this massive income gap, but it's not just income. We also see differences in parental time. So kids who are growing up in married parent households they get more time with parents. And we think that matters. Parents are reading to their kids. They're driving them the activities. They're doing all these things that you know, development psychologists tell us are developmentally appropriate at different ages and, and set kids up to do better in school, to avoid getting in trouble in school, and, and basically be on a better path. And then we see that difference in outcomes. Again, you know, higher income, higher educated parents are more likely to be married. But even adjusting for that and, and comparing kids who are in otherwise similar situations, but for this difference in whether they have two parents or one parent in the home, we see that kids with two parents, they're more likely to go to college, they're more likely to graduate college, they're more likely to have higher earnings and be married themselves as adults. Once we recognize the policy urgency there, we should have the same sort of public and private and philanthropic investments in programs, in policies that are focused on strengthening families as we do on policies that are looking at schools or training programs or all of these other institutions that in many ways now are trying to make up for the deficits of broken families. And so I think we need both you know, economic investments and social changes and a commitment to strengthening families as a way to improve kids' outcomes and to build a stronger society and future for our country. That was Melissa Carney, professor of economics at the University of Maryland and author of The Two-Parent Privilege, How Americans Stopped Getting Married and Started Falling Behind. That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week.
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.